Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly note that this episode contains some adult themes. Brought to you by Penguin. And what we've always seen as natural and normal is that women are not in the public sphere, they're not in positions of leadership, they're not the ones who have a voice. And so if you have a woman advocating for that, that is a threat. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Penguin Podcast, the place where we dive into the creative world of our guests through the objects that they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. Today, you're joining me from home. Puppies, kids, wife noise. You may hear it in the background. That's what happens. My guest today is a writer, broadcaster, award-winning campaigner. Her campaigns have led to the introduction of a woman on the £10 note and the construction of the first female statue in Parliament Square of suffragist Millicent Fawcett. Her second book, Invisible Women, which we'll be chatting about, was a Sunday Times bestseller for over 20 weeks and named their book of the decade. It reveals the hidden ways in which women are forgotten in society and the profound impact that it has on us all. Today, she talks to me down the line from Rutland. It's Caroline Criado Perez. Caroline, welcome. Hello. Now, um, you've got some... uh, fascinating objects which have inspired your creative process which includes pockets and a a toilet (laughs) sign um but first uh, you know because i've i've been trolled a lot recently and well i go through trolling things from time to time it always happens and and you've gone through it as well and plus i just wonder how do you process the hate that your existence seems to create in some very insecure and fragile people you know it really depends what day you ask me but it's not easy, um, as you must know, given it's something you've just said you go through, which I'm really sorry to hear. Some days it's easier to sort of rise above it and just ignore it and try to focus on your work and what you think is important. And other days, just the bad faith nature of it, the way that you are deliberately misinterpreted. And then of course, just the nastiness, you know, the fact that people hate you despite not knowing you and that they want to harm you. It's really difficult to not be upset by that and for that not to affect you. Is it constant or does it come in waves? I guess there's always a, there's a constant sort of undercurrent of it, but obviously certain things will trigger it. So if I happen to appear in a news story, or if I go on a radio show or a TV show, there will be uh, a spike. But there's a constant sort of underlying, yeah, undercurrent of it. That's not to say I'm always getting rape and death threats. I'm absolutely not. I should be clear about that. Um, Those kinds of abusive messages aren't nearly as frequent as just the general unpleasantness. Have you ever tried to understand why people or certain section of people Hmm. get so triggered by the word feminist or is it just a waste of time to think about that? No, I don't think at all it's a waste of time. I think it's really important to understand where it comes from because you have to understand what you're dealing with to be able to address it. You know, you can't just say 
I mean, you could, you could just say, well, these are hateful people and let's forget about it, but that's not ultimately going to change anything. And that's what my whole life really is about. You know, I'm trying to change things. So it's really important to understand why I get these reactions. So I, and I think particularly when it came to getting rape and death threats over something that I thought of as sort of fairly innocuous, actually, which was the banknotes campaign. So I was campaigning for the Bank of England to have a female historical figure on the back of banknotes. And so to be threatened with mutilation and rape and and murder over something seemingly so trivial, of course, you have to think, well, why Why is this? Why is this happening? What is it that is so threatening to these people that they feel the need to threaten me? And I think really it's that, it's that threat. You know, that's what's at the heart of it. It's seen as a threat. And then once you recognise that, then you start to think, well, why is it a threat? It's a threat to the default. It's a threat to what we have always seen as natural and normal. And what we've always seen as natural and normal is that women are not in the public sphere. They're not in positions of leadership. They're not the ones who have a voice. And so if you have a woman advocating for that, that is a threat to the current social order, I guess. And I think that's a really valuable thing to recognise because once you recognise that, that's something you can work with. You can't really work with just rage that you have nowhere, no idea where it comes from. But if you know where it comes from, then you can start to think about, okay, so how do I address this? Do you think that you have succeeded in persuading any of them of their <laughs> foolishness? <laughs> um, that is a very good question. I don't know if I've succeeded in convincing anyone who threatened to rape me of their foolishness. Well, nor should you have to. They should just be, they, well, they should just, the, the full force of the law should be visited upon right. them. It's but, not your job to do that to them. I was thinking I of think more low level foolishness than, right, that, yeah, than, um, than criminality. <laughs> yes, I think so. You know, well, I mean, in, in so far as I know that there are men who have got in touch with me to tell me that reading my book changed their perspective on the world and changed their mind about things. And I have had women getting in touch with me, telling me that their partner, their male partner told them that they understood feminism for the first time. One woman actually told me her husband uh, apologized to her <laughs> because after reading the book, he realized how much of the unpaid work that she did, he had just never really noticed. And so they'd been having arguments about the unequal division of household labour and he had thought he was doing his fair share. And then suddenly the book made him realise that he had an inaccurate perception of what was actually going on. So, Well, I'm glad you got my email on that because that's pretty much my <laughs> life after reading your book, if I'm honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Which has yeah. been really, really great because that that is part of what I wanted to do. Well, it's entirely what I wanted to do. I wanted to change people's minds, women's minds and men's minds. And so it's been really amazing that the book has been having that effect. Let's go to your first object, Caroline. And it's a mask, uh, yeah. an FFP3 mask, very specific. Uh -huh. Yes. Well, I like to be specific. I did yeah. write a book about data after all. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the reason for choosing the FFP3 mask specifically, which is that personal protective equipment, which is meant to protect workers who work in 
any kind of dangerous environment has been designed uh, mainly to fit Caucasian men. And that means that anyone who isn't a Caucasian man is less likely to be wearing personal protective equipment that actually does the job of protecting them. And it's something that women who work in industries where PPE is required have been talking about for a long time. And it's something that has really been a huge issue in the COVID epidemic. I've been inundated with uh, messages from female healthcare workers and female care workers telling me that their PPE does not fit them. And that's everything from gloves being too big, gowns being too big, which obviously is an issue for sort of dexterity and moving around and being able to do your job effectively. But the masks have really been the most serious issue. And that is because it's one thing for a gown to be too big and that can be dangerous. You know, it can impair your mobility. There's evidence that it could collect aerosolized particles, which when we're talking about something like COVID-19 is very dangerous because they contain a a high viral load, which you can shed as you take off the gown. Um, But if your mask doesn't fit you, your mask isn't doing its job. And that's because in order for the mask to work, there has to be a seal with the mask wearer's face. And if the mask is designed for a face that is much bigger than a female face, then it's not going to have a seal. And that is what we have been seeing, is that women are really struggling to find a mask that will fit them. There may be one type of mask that fits them, and that's only if they then pull the mask really, really tight. And then this is why we're seeing so many healthcare workers with these skin abrasions and bruises on their face. Um, And this sort of ties in as well with the supply chain issue that we have seen being written about and spoken about in the media, in that if you are a female healthcare worker, which by the way is 77% of the NHS and that rises to 89% for nurses, you are likely to only have perhaps one type of mask that fits you. So if you're already having supply chain issues and the majority of your workforce is able to fit into one, maybe two models of mask, you can see how those particular masks are going to very quickly run out, which is exactly what has been happening. And what that sort of highlights as well is really a central thesis of the book, which is that the problem that we have in all sorts of areas is that we think of the male body as somehow a unisex universal body. And these masks are seen as unisex and all sorts of PPE from stab vests that haven't been designed to accommodate breast tissue to shoes that are far too large and wide um, for women's feet are seen as unisex, but they're not unisex. They're designed for men. Uh, And there are so many examples in this book um, another one, of course, being seatbelts. Mm. I mean, that in itself yeah. is terrifying. The idea yeah. that as a woman, you are less safe in a car that the designers of said car tell us that all humans are safe in. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's a really good example, again, of this bias where we think of the male body as somehow gender neutral. So for decades, the only car crash test dummy that was used, and it's still the most commonly used car crash test dummy, was based around the body of an average man from America. And uh, obviously, that is not the body of the average human. (laughs) Car design doesn't work very well for women. So as you mentioned, seatbelts, 
the issue with seatbelts is they haven't been designed to accommodate breast tissue. And so women are often found to be wearing seatbelts improperly, like not the way that they were designed to be used because they're so uncomfortable. And so you've got women wearing, potentially wearing the seatbelt wrong, which by the way, just public health message, do not tuck your seatbelt under your armpit um, or under your boob, women. I know that it's uncomfortable and uh, it's tempting to do that, but please stop doing that from this day forward because it means you are far less protected in a crash. But so there's a problem. If it's uncomfortable, that's what women do. I've done that until I read this research and realised, oh, okay, that means it's actually not protecting me at all and potentially actually making it more dangerous. Then you've got issues like um, where the seat, you know, the standard position for the seat where it is safe. Um, you know, you can see, move your seat backwards or forwards. Um, and women tend to sit further forward in order to be able to reach the pedals, you know, a very important part of driving. But that puts them at a higher risk in a frontal collision. So you've got this woman who is possibly wearing an, a, a seatbelt, not in the way it was intended to be um, worn, and she's sitting further forward than she is meant to be sitting. Um, and then she gets into a crash and she gets thrown much further forward than a man in the same crash would because the seat back is too firm. This actually isn't an issue of comfort. This is because it was designed uh, to accommodate the weight of a much bigger body, which is the body of the average male car crash test dummy. Um, and it doesn't absorb her weight because she weighs less. So she's already sitting further forward. Her seatbelt isn't protecting her properly. And then she gets thrown further forward. And the result of all of this and, you know, obviously other design features is that if a woman is in a car crash, she is 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die than a man in the same car crash. And it basically all comes down to this bias that we have where we think of the average man as equal to the average human. Because I mean, if you think about it, you know, it, it's just not credible to suggest that this is some kind of vast conspiracy, right? Like it's not credible to suggest that car manufacturers hate women and want us to die. You know, they want us to buy their cars. Of course. Um, so it would make sense to make a safe car. So why isn't it happening? Well, mainly it's happening because it just hasn't really been thought about. Mm. Yes, uh, I think you said that um, it was 2015 when the EU discovered that women existed and drove. <laughs> they, they discovered, they'd known that women existed before. That's that's not true, but but that the, they drove, and it was worth actually testing out. Yeah. Uh, women. So that was in the um, Euro NCAP tests, which are the consumer tests, and so they introduced a female car crash test dummy. Now, bear in mind, though, that what is called a female car crash test dummy is not an average female car crash test dummy. It's a very, very scaled down version of the male dummy, so small that it's comparable to a 12-year-old 12, 12 child. And this dummy is only used in one out of the five tests and only in the passenger seat. So basically, very, very scaled down men uh, can sit in the passenger seat now, probably, fairly safely. Um, although actually when they did introduce it, the star ratings did start to go down. So obviously it has some sort of impact, but the fact remains that women are still at this much increased risk. And so clearly that dummy is not doing an adequate job. That's the, the, the incredibly terrifying part of it. Perhaps uh, a more innocuous example 
but one that very much leads in the direction of what we were previously talking about is your next object, which is pockets. <laughs> Why is your next object pockets, Caroline? <laughs> Um, I can't really remember why I put down pockets. I think okay. I was I was trolling you. Um, <laughs> well, I I seem to have become kind of a pockets woman. Like people associate me with pockets through no fault of my own. Um, but basically, because I am kind of obsessed with how women's clothes don't have pockets in them. And it's incredibly annoying. <laughs> you know, that's all we want. Look, women, all we want is a dress with pockets, nice pockets that we can fit our phone in. And and it's incredible to me how difficult it is to find women's clothes with pockets in them. I suppose one of the things that I thought was interesting about pockets is that most men have no idea how appalling the pocket situation is for women. And I think that that is kind of fascinating as an example of how when there's something that's just incredibly common in your life that you don't really talk about it, you could have no idea how someone that you see every single day is experiencing something. Obviously, Mm -hmm. pockets is not necessarily the most important example, although, as you can see, I'm very exercised by it. Yeah, Um, for sure. But, you know, my... My brother only discovered the pockets issue somehow. I don't know how he's managed to miss it because I've been angry about pockets for years now. But he only discovered this in uh, at Christmas when I went to stay with him and his family. And somehow we got talking about pockets and I showed him how tiny my pockets were. And he was shocked to discover how tiny the pockets in women's clothes were. And sort of conversely, I didn't realise how big men's pockets were. You guys can carry books in there. You know, <laughs> I, I'm lucky if I can carry a pound coin in a pocket and, you know, let's hope it's not <laughs> a, uh, that's assuming it's not a, um, you know, a fake pocket, which yeah. is just, you know, that is just the clothes industry trolling us. But, uh, you know, the sort of more serious point is this idea of perspective and you don't know what you don't know. And why would a man necessarily know that women's pockets are so unfunctional? Um And there are lots of other examples of this that I think are quite interesting. Um, One was this guy got in touch with me. Having read my book, he was talking to his girlfriend about, I don't know, I guess the issues that the book raised. Um, And one of the things that they talked about was going running after dark. And until they had sort of started speaking about it in this context, he had never realized that his girlfriend wouldn't go running after dark. She had never mentioned it to him because to her, it's just so obvious. Of course, I don't go running after dark. I don't feel safe. But he had never realized that this was a calculation that she makes, that she makes every time she goes out the house, you know, is it light enough for me to be safe to go out exercising? Whereas, of course, he will just go out without even thinking. And I think that that is a really important realization that there are things that men will be experiencing or that women will be experiencing that the opposite sex has no idea about because they're just completely commonplace. And the reason I think that's so important is because it really shows the importance of experience and perspective when it comes to data collection, when it comes to design, because of this idea of you don't know what you don't know. And I guess another example that, that it makes me think of is the Apple Health Tracker app which when it was released in 2014 was 
described as this comprehensive health tracker app. And it was very comprehensive. You know, you could track your, uh, your copper intake, which I'm sure you track every day. Isn't that yeah, right? I'm all over it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your molybdenum intake. Oh, Do you know geez. what that is? I'm, I'm, I'm borderline <laughs> obsessed with that. <laughs> he says lying. Um, but you, um, you couldn't track your period. And let wow. me assure you that way more people track their periods wow. than you... track their molybdenum. And again, you know, to take this back to the car example of this isn't a conspiracy, it's simply not credible to suggest that Apple deliberately set out to exclude periods from their tracker, right? They weren't thinking, we hate periods, screw periods, screw anyone who has a period, we don't want them buying our product, right? They just forgot that periods happen. And why do they forget that periods happen? Because it wasn't something that anyone on the design team had. No one on the design team probably had ever had a period. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's really the pockets. The pockets is an opportunity for me to have a rant about pockets and a plea to clothing designers to just give us pockets. Like, sew them up if you're that worried about the line of your clothes, but give us the option to actually have somewhere to put our hands and to put our stuff so we don't have to carry a handbag everywhere. But second, to highlight the importance of having diversity when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to design, when it comes to anything really, because there will be gaps in your knowledge if you have a homogenous team. There will be things that you don't know because you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what the gaps are in your knowledge that will result in that discrimination. Um, your next object, Caroline, is a women's toilet sign um, not a not a gender neutral one. Yeah, <laughs> a woman's toilet sign. Tell yeah. us why you've well, chosen actually, this. That is very interesting because what would a gender neutral toilet sign look like? Well, quite. I I, I know what it. Uh, well, because you've you've articulated it most eloquently. What it looks like when the barber can try and do it. And how. <laughs> well, but I mean the exact the actual sign because there's an interesting story I got sent from Finland where they said, because they used to have for their um, pedestrian crossing sign, a very visibly male figure. You know, it had a man's, it, I mean, you know, this is very, very stereotyping, of course, but, you know, quote unquote, men's hair and, um, you know, men's clothes and men's feet and was walking, striding this purposeful way. It was very clearly meant to be a man. And they claim that they have now turned this into a gender neutral sign. But it's actually just the traditional sign for a man, you know, the traditional male toilet sign, it's that, it's that sort of graphic representation of a human figure, but everyone reads that as male. It goes back to this idea of gender neutral being read as male. Anyway, that's a slight tangent. Back to the okay. toilets. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, I, I love um, that you did that. Right, back to the toilets. <laughs> so the reason I chose the women's toilet sign is because Rather to my surprise, toilets have become one of people's major takeaways from the book. It it really took hold of particularly women's imaginations to the extent that before we went into lockdown, I was being sent pictures of uh, that women took of themselves standing in massive queues for the ladies um, on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis. And it was really fascinating to me that that part of the book, which really wasn't a very long or big part of the book, had 
captured people's imaginations so much. And I think the reason is because A, it's a very common experience for women. I think you would struggle to find a woman who has not had to stand many times in a queue while any man she may be with saunters in and out merrily mm. of the of the gents. Um, apart from at a football match. Apart where, from perhaps at a football match. Yeah, well, there's always a queue at all, and we look kind of longingly as women well, don't because there aren't quite, that many women. Quite that's right. Why, to yeah. give you a taste of your own medicine. Indeed, rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's, there's that. And then also the fact that women have been used to being kind of mocked for this and kind of told it's our fault. You know, it's probably that we're being really frivolous and just putting on makeup. You know, what is it the women do in there? God, assuming that the fault is ours. And we have kind of assumed that. And I know being a woman that we have sort of internalized that. So you would be in a queue thinking, what is, what are all these women doing? Why are they taking so long? I'm very quick. I'm just in and out. <laughs> What's wrong with all these other idiots? And so to discover that actually the problem is not with individual women putting on their makeup, um, but is in fact a systemic design issue, I think has made a lot of women very, very angry. So what is this systemic issue I'm talking about? Well, historically, the way we've done toilets is the way you might think would be a fair and equitable way to do toilets, which is equal floor space for men and women. The problem with that is that immediately that means you don't have equality of provision because you can fit more urinals into a square space um, than you can fit um, cubicles. So if you have the same square footage, you'll get more facilities for men than for women. So immediately you already actually need more square footage for the female toilet in order to provide the same number of facilities. But actually it gets worse than that because there's actually more demand on the female toilet. So first of all, it's true that women do take longer and that is simply a very simple matter of biology in that women have to sit down to go to the toilet. And so you've got these cubicles and so start off with a man, right? He goes up to urinal. He can see the urinal's free. He just goes up to it, unzips, off he goes, I assume. <laughs> and um, that's almost exactly what happens. You, right, you assume you correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For a woman, she's walking down the, the line of cubicles to see which one's free. Um, so, you know, that's going to take a millisecond longer. She opens the door, goes in, turns around, finds somewhere to put her bag, and her coat, assuming there's a hook, you know, she's looking around for it. Yeah. Uh, then probably has to clean the seat because it's inevitably disgusting. Finally pulls down her trousers or her skirt, or whatever, sits down, does her business and then reverses the process, right? That process does take longer. I know it sounds trivial, but you know, those no, few does, seconds yeah. add up. Then you've got the 25% of women of childbearing age who will be on their period at any one time and may have to change their tampon or their sanitary pad or whatever. Uh, you've got pregnant women who are going to be going to the toilet much more frequently because, you know, you've got a kid pushing down on your bladder. You've got women who suffer from urinary tract infections. Uh, those are eight times more common in women um, and they require you to be going to the toilet very, very often. And then you have the fact that women are much more likely to be accompanied by young children, for example, or older people. And that means that there will just be more people as well going to the female toilet. So you add all that up together and 
it becomes completely understandable why it is if you have uh, the same square footage for women as for men that you end up with a huge queue at the loo's. It is basically because there is more demand on the female toilet, but fewer facilities. I mean, this is something that I've thought about a lot. The difficulty for white men specifically, I think it's much harder for someone who has never had to jar up against a way in which the world has clearly been designed without you in mind to understand what that feels like and how it shapes the way you interact with the world. Because it's a very sort of intuitive thing. You know, I think most women, I mean, certainly a lot of women who've got in touch with me, one of the things that they've said is, you know, I can't believe I didn't realise I was doing that, you know, because we're so used to navigating this world and getting around things that we haven't really realised that we're doing it. And so in a way, it's quite hard to describe it to someone and it's much harder to describe it to someone who doesn't experience it at all. Mm. Look, we, 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 we need to get to your final object now. Right, which, okay. <laughs> you know, you love, a, you love a study, I know that, but, but you also love a spreadsheet because that's your final... <laughs> Object. You love studies and spreadsheets. Tell us about sex disaggregated data. Sex disaggregated data is really at the heart of what I, what I want to happen as a result of invisible women. I want people to start collecting sex disaggregated data. And that means collecting data on women as well as men, not assuming that if you collect data on men, that will apply to everyone, but also specifically to separate it out by sex which is what sex disaggregated data means. It means that you have a column for men and you have a column for women. And that is incredibly important because if you don't separate out the data by sex, there will be important insights that you miss. So for example, for years, researchers were completely baffled by stem cells derived from muscles, from muscle tissue. Sometimes they promoted regeneration, sometimes they didn't. It seemed like they were completely unpredictable until they sex disaggregated their data. And they found that at that point, it wasn't that they were unpredictable. In fact, they were completely predictable along sex lines. So female cells promoted regeneration and male cells didn't. And that was an insight that had they sex disaggregated their data from the beginning, they would not have wasted, you know, years of research time and effort. And if you care anything about the allocation of resources in a useful way, if you care about designing anything that is going to work for a wide variety of people, then you need to have the best evidence you can possibly have. And if you aren't separating out your evidence by sex, then you are missing a whole wealth of information um, that could potentially completely change your approach. Caroline, let's go to the opening of your book where you're describing how the data gap exists everywhere. Let's hear a mm-hmm. clip from the audiobook now. Most of recorded human history is one big data gap. Starting with the theory of man the hunter, the chroniclers of the past have left little space for women's role in the evolution of humanity, whether cultural or biological. Instead, The lives of men have been taken to represent those of humans overall. When it comes to the lives of the other half of humanity, there is often nothing but silence. And these silences are everywhere. Our entire culture is riddled with them. Films, news, literature, science, city planning, economics. The stories we tell ourselves about our past, present and future, they are all marked, disfigured, by a female-shaped, absent presence. This is the gender data gap. 
The gender data gap isn't just about silence. These silences, these gaps, have consequences. They impact on women's lives every day. The impact can be relatively minor, shivering in offices set to a male temperature norm, for example, or struggling to reach a top shelf set at a male height norm. Irritating, certainly, and just undoubtedly, but not life-threatening. Not like crashing in a car whose safety measures don't account for women's measurements. Not like having your heart attack go undiagnosed because your symptoms are deemed atypical. For these women, the consequences of living in a world built around male data can be deadly. That was Invisible Women, written and read by my guest, Caroline Criado-Perez. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Uh, Caroline, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us. Such a pleasure to speak to you, I have to say. Thank you for having me. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, a world seen through the eyes of an innocent child. To Kill a Mockingbird puts a spotlight on the injustices and inequalities of the American South. It is a moving story about hope, fear, race and justice, and how the evils of the world can never win. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed, and Jim's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, He was seldom self-conscious about his injury. His left arm was somewhat shorter than his right. When he stood or walked, the back of his hand was at right angles to his body, his thumb parallel to his thigh. He couldn't have cared less, so long as he could pass and punt. A literary masterpiece. The audiobook edition of To Kill a Mockingbird is available to download now.